Well, welcome to another segment of the Grassy Knoll. <clears throat> it is February 19th, 2007, and you're going to get a pre-record that was done just yesterday with Dave McGowan. We're going to be talking about his book, Program to Kill, and um, the history of serial killers, or at least the most recent uh, few decades of such, where it might have been uh, not necessarily a... Uh, sporadic or uh, organic thing, if you will. Uh, I guess I got hacked during the weekend, and, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, it was more like somebody was in there being a poltergeist and moving furniture around, if you know what I mean. Uh, shows disappeared. Uh, in fact, one is still gone. It is the uh, Chapman show, but it's on the server. See, I mean, whatever they did, they did just to uh, to the website. The audio is on the server, and if you want to hit the Chapman show, uh, and you can see from the, all the other uh, links on the audio page, they, they go by, uh, obviously, a certain pattern. You can pretty much guess sometimes, uh, if you don't see what's there, that, in fact, uh, uh, you can hit it. So with this one, of course, it would be visigoth.com slash audio slash Chapman 2 hyphen 9 hyphen 07. Dot mp3, right? Chapman's name, Chapman 2 hyphen 9 hyphen 07 dot mp3, and you'll be able to get chappy. All right, so anyway, I don't know what that was about. It could have been a lot worse. We'll see if it happens a second time. I don't know if this is a warning or something like that, you know, because of what we've been doing. Or it could be just a coincidence, honestly. It could be that. So we'll see uh, what transpires, and uh, that I think will tell all. In the meantime, meantime, I still can't breathe, so bear with me. Uh, we got Dave McGowan for it, and we'll have him back again tomorrow. Uh, we are taping this on Sunday, February 18th for Play Today, Monday the 19th. We have with us Dave McGowan. Uh, the website, by the way, if you want to check it out while you're listening, is www.davesweb.cnchost.com. You can hit that also from my website, either the upcoming shows or his audio, which will be archived um, right after uh, you hear this. Uh, he's the uh, author of three books, um, uh, uh, Program the Kill, get it out there, bro, uh, Learning the F Word and Derailing Democracy, and it's about Program to Kill uh, that we're going to uh, speak to today. And so, uh, uh, Dave, thanks very much for joining us uh, out there on the left coast, huh? <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's been a long time, and, you know, Serious is a heart attack. Uh, folks have said to me time and time again, why don't you, why don't you, how come you haven't had you on? And you know what? They're right. And and so anyway, that uh, that time has uh, passed us, and you're here, and I'm glad that you are. Again, you've uh, agreed to be on tomorrow also to talk about another subject. But with Program to Kill, and it deals with the nature of, I guess, serial killers. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, down in Florida, as you well know, uh, they've had their share. Uh, one was just put that uh, put to death recently. But uh, from your take, are you seeing this as something also that I hate to say it? I mean, it may not be the best term for it. But is this also kind of weaponry uh, uh, that is somewhat unleashed against the, the population? Uh, yeah. What's going on there? I see it very much as uh, as being that. Yeah, it's, uh, I see it as being basically. Um I guess you could say a uh, psychological warfare tactic, very much, uh, very much along the lines that uh, terrorism is, is used. In that, uh, 
it's a, a vehicle of sorts for instilling fear in people. And uh, as it becomes, as it's become more and more apparent, you know, over particularly over the last several years, uh, it's all about control through fear. I mean, that's that's the basic operating principle of our government and uh, most other governments as well. Uh, you strike enough fear into people, and they're going to run to Big Brother for protection. You know, I mean, we see that with uh, terrorism now. Uh, you know, uh, alleged terrorism anyway, and uh, before that, and, and, and still, uh, the serial killers play play very much the same role. I mean, very few things strike fear into people's hearts uh, the way that serial killers do, you know, so yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's very much sort of a created phenomenon that, that is used as a vehicle for social control. Was there an event, was there a particular uh, individual uh, who uh, obviously had a reign of terror that, that finally made you uh, want to take a look into this? Because this is not a very pleasant subject, no doubt about it. I mean, it's, it's as, you know, abysmal as a, a you know, Nietzschean uh, event. But uh, was there something that happened out there that made you finally say, you know what, I, I want to take a look at this? Yeah, yeah, there was actually. Um, it, it kind of arose, and we talked a little bit about this, you know, uh, off the air. It kind of arose, grew out of um, a uh, something that I discovered while researching my second book, which you uh, mentioned in your intro, the uh, Understanding the F Word book, which was that um, George Bush, and very few people realize this. Um, what what they do realize is that he was like the uh, the governor. Uh, he he basically put uh, green lighted more executions during his tenure as governor of Texas than any governor in any state in the in the history of the union. I mean, he is the America's premier hanging governor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, people uh, do know that, but what they don't know is that he actually did issue one pardon, one and only one pardon, out of the, I think, 153 cases that crossed his desk as governor, and that was for uh, a gentleman by the name of Henry Lee Lucas, <laughs> a guy who at various times confessed to up to like 600 of the most brutal, horrendous serial killings imaginable, you know, complete with cannibalism, necrophilia, torture, mutilation, you know, all the all the standard that you find in these cases. And yet out of all the people who came before George Bush to have their cases reviewed, he was the only one granted a pardon. And uh, that definitely piqued my interest. Mm. And, uh, and I included that in the book, and I got uh, a lot of feedback on that from people who said, well, why would he do that? Well, you know, what you have a theory about about why he would have done that? And at the time, I really didn't. So I decided to look into it, and uh, what I discovered in, in researching his case was that he had once written a book, or assisted he was he was largely illiterate but he had basically told his story to another gentleman who had uh, who had put it out as a book a uh, very obscure book entitled the hand of death and what henry claimed is that what looked like a series of random killings were actually basically contract killings that he was killing on behalf of a cult and that uh, his victims were in fact targeted for specific purposes and that his job basically was to make them look like 
random, senseless killings when, in fact, many of them had specific motives. And uh, around that same time, I happened to, uh, I think it was referred to me by someone or something that knew, you know, that I was delving into this research, a copy of uh, Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, which is a study, an alternative study of the Son of Sam case, David Berkowitz, in which he presents uh, very, uh, a very similar, similar scenario, which is that David Berkowitz was actually just one of many sons of Sam, and that he was acting on behalf of a cult of individuals, and that basically he became the fall guy to cover up the involvement of all these various other individuals, and that led me to. Uh, uh, a book, uh, The Family, by Ed Sanders about the Manson case, which mm -hmm. had other parallels. And then I stumbled upon a couple cases in Europe that had been reopened, the, the Monster of Florence case, and uh, another one that I can't think of right now, which had recently been reopened at, at the time that I was doing this research because evidence had surfaced that... Uh, those killings were not the uh, the work of a single individual, but were in fact the, the work of a cult of individuals. So, you know, I started to realize that that you know there was a few too many of these cases floating about for them to be just sort of isolated cases. So I avidly dove into uh, the serial killer literature, so to speak, and started going through, you know, uh, the 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 uh, various books about uh, first, you know, most, uh, all the all of your standard high-profile guys that everybody knows, you know, the Ted Bundys, the John Wayne Gacy's, Jeffrey Dahmer's, Hillside Stranglers, and those led me to uh, to various other cases and uh, ended up researching, I don't know, some three dozen or so or maybe more individual uh, quote-unquote serial killer cases, and I found these same sort of common threads running through each of the stories. Uh, and what I, what I began to realize is that there was a completely different way of looking at this whole serial killer phenomenon than, than the way that, uh, you know, we are conditioned to, to look at these people. Uh, was kind of a long answer. <laughs> I like that. That's just funny. That's uh, that, that's basically how the book came about. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people were kind of surprised from it be by it because prior to that, my writings were I don't want to say mainstream, more mainstream, but they were not really as far off the beaten path as as this book took me. You know, uh, mm -hmm. which you know the threads running through that are, are ones of mind control and uh, you know uh, satanic cults and occult groups and. All this kind of weird stuff that, that's normally thought of as being kind of the province of, of right-wing conspiracy theorists, where I have always thought of myself as being solidly on the left. And so it caught a lot of my readers by surprise that I had what they thought was, you know, taking this kind of a change of direction. But, I mean, basically, I just, I just follow the trail wherever it leads. I'm not really afraid to venture... <laughs> You know, in any direction, a lot of what I find I consider to be disinformation and nonsense. But, uh, you know, the more I looked into the this, the more I realized that there was, you know, solid, uh, pretty solid documentation of a lot of this stuff. And the book, by the way, is drawn for almost exclusively uh, from mainstream sources. This is not a book that's sourced to, you know, conspiracy uh, posting on conspiracy.com or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. This is all... 
This is all information culled from, from very mainstream books, magazine articles, newspaper articles. Um, it's my belief that you can get a pretty accurate picture of how the world operates from these sources, but I mean, it's all about... It's all about knowing how to read between the lines and sort of mine out the little nuggets of information and, uh, and connecting the dots. It's really all about pattern recognition and recognizing how, how these, these, these uh, sort of hidden themes run through uh, each of these individual stories. Um, what was your approach like uh, in the book? Did you go ahead and profile certain individuals? Did you approach it that way? Um, or is it a running narrative that... Uh, Start, you know, starts chronologically and ends up, uh, you know, decades later. Um, no, the uh, organization of the book probably isn't the best. It's <laughs> kind of rambles off in various directions. It's just there's, there's like so much, so much information, so many different threads that you got that I tried to follow. Um, probably could have uh, used the services of an editor. Unfortunately, I didn't have one available. So I don't know that the book's really organized in any particular way. Um, it's just uh, <laughs> there's a lot of information packed in there, and uh, uh, I, I don't know as far as, far as the org- as far as how it, how it's organized. It's kind of um, I don't know. It, ma- it makes sense to me. I don't know, maybe it doesn't make sense to some other people, but. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> anyway. Oh, well, right now, I mean, I, I was just, I mean, obviously, I, I haven't uh, uh, availed myself of the book, but, uh, again, this is a topic, and it's really, it's kind of, hmm, sounds nasty to use the word interesting, but, you know, it is interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. Actually, the first section of the book, like the first, uh, I don't know, six chapters, I think, which are organized into the first section, are actually about uh, organized pedophilia. And uh, um, child pornography and uh, various things of that nature, and that sort of segues into the serial killer stuff because there there are very very clear parallels uh, between the two topics. They maybe not don't at first seem to be related, and some people are kind of surprised. They're like, "Wow, I'm like you know 80 pages into this book, and there's nothing about serial killers yet." Well, it all kind of ties in uh, if, you, if you just sort of, uh, you know, stick with it through the end. It, it uh, becomes, becomes pretty clear that, that, uh, that it's all sort of tied in. The book goes into even, like, uh, the uh, parallels between, for example, the John JonBenet Ramsey kidnapping mm-hmm. and the uh, so-called crime of the century kidnapping, uh, alleged kidnapping. I don't believe he ever was kidnapped. But anyway, of the uh, Lindbergh baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it covers a lot of ground, and uh, to somebody who hasn't read it yet, it may seem like uh, it's kind of a lot of unrelated stuff, but it actually is all very closely related, as as, uh, as you see, as, as you know, the, as the book proceeds, it kind of all comes together. Well, let me ask you, um, because uh, do we have two things at play here? Do we have actual rogues? or um, maniacs that operate on their own? And do we have a situation where we have, and I would say, a serial killer or a personification for serial killers? As you said, like with the son of Sam, he's the one that hangs, but were there other operatives going on? So again, do we have some people who are definitely, you know, 
pathological, like Dahmer, I don't know, you know, or uh, Theo Bundy who, uh, you know, wreaked havoc down here in Florida. Do we have some people running on their own, and do we have uh, an orchestrated, shall we say, for lack of better words, maybe, network? Uh, yeah, there is, there is, I believe, a network uh, uh, to some extent, and there's, there's a lot of connections between a lot of these cases that you wouldn't expect to find. Uh, in one of the chapters of the book, I actually kind of draw a distinction between what I believe are sort of, I guess you could say, programmed patsies and guys that uh, that are very, very likely programmed assassins. Uh, Albert DeSalvo being a classic mm-hmm. example of the first. His case has recently been reopened, and, and uh, you know, modern DNA testing and stuff has basically proven that he was not, in fact, yep. responsible for uh, at least some of the murders that he was credited with, and in fact, he probably uh, had nothing to do with any of them. He was never convicted, never even tried for any of the murders, by the way. A lot of people don't realize that, but uh, he never, he was actually never, never, never charged, tried, or convicted for any of those murders. And it's now becoming clear that he was, that he was in fact railroaded as a patsy, and uh, you know some of the people behind that railroading had very clear CIA connections. You know there were there were indications of uh, hypnosis and and uh, various things like that. It's quite quite an interesting story. Uh-huh. And the, the example, uh, classic example of the latter would be a guy like uh, Arthur Shawcross. Uh, who was or claimed to have been a Phoenix program type assassin in Vietnam. He claimed to have racked up uh, like 43 kills in Vietnam, uh, which were, you know, just these barbaric crimes that he committed that, you know, involved, um, you know, rape and mutilation and leaving bodies on display and you know, all the stuff that, that serial killers traditionally do. And that's that's very typical of the, of the Phoenix program. In fact, that's my book postulates that, that in many ways the, the serial killer phenomenon, which really really bubbled to the surface in the latter years of the Vietnam War, was kind of a case of the Phoenix program coming home. Because uh, if the Phoenix program was a, a torture, terror, and assassination in, in Vietnam, it was specifically designed to strike fear and, uh, and, and demoralize the Vietnamese people. It was uh, an assassination program that claimed at least 20,000 lives. I mean, our, our own Congress has admitted that at least 20,000 lives were, were taken by it, and uh, other estimates range considerably higher than that. But these these were crimes that were deliberately committed just as barbarically as possible to strike fear into, into the hearts of the Vietnamese people by, you know, leaving, mm-hmm. leaving bodies on stakes and, you know, just doing all this, uh, just, just all these horrendous, uh, you know, horrendous things that were done to, to uh, as a psychological warfare tactic. And it's the very same things that you find with serial killers here at home, the very same behaviors, the very same uh, sorts of scenarios. But anyway, Shawcross uh, claimed 43 kills in that manner in Vietnam, none, none, of, none of which made him a murderer, of course. It just made him an American soldier. But then he continued on that pattern when he came home and uh, racked up several more kills. So he is he is the guy that, that is mentioned in the book as just you know one example, a very clear cut example of what I feel is, is a, a programmed assassin versus a programmed pass. I think I think there's both there's both sort of factors at work there in these cases. Well, it's uh, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, situation about the Salvo as the Boston Strangler. 
Um, in a case like Manson, and maybe we can talk about that in a little bit, that looks like it was very much handled. Um, but in a situation like the Salvo, would, would there have been any kind of consortium or group uh, that I wouldn't say benef- benefited from it, but was there some kind of objective they were trying to achieve, or was this just some kind of also experiment this, to, to dry run a way of creating terror and, and see how it all works out. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I do know what you mean. I'm not really sure, to be honest. Uh, that one was, a, you know, I mean, I only know of that from what I've read in, in books and whatnot as well before my time. Uh, Stop it. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, what the, like, the whole kind of social climate and whatnot was like back then. The, the Manson case was more, uh, I was actually aware of it at the time, and, uh, you know, it's kind of e- easy for me to look back now and say that that was, you know, in part, one of the objectives being pursued there was the discrediting of the whole hippie and hippie commune type type movement, you know, it was basically a way of saying, well, look at this, these, these aren't these peaceful hippie communes that we've been led to believe, these people are mass murderers, you know, and I think the, uh, at the same time, what was playing out was the, uh, what was that group called, the Symbionese Liberation Army with the whole, you know, kidnapping of Patty Hearst and all that. And that group was, was quite obviously an intelligence front. I mean, all, all of the people, the main principal people involved in that were like former police informers and you know, former FBI affiliates and, and all this. And, you know, the guy that the guy that really was behind starting it all was a guy named uh, Colston Westbrook, I believe his name was. He worked at Avocaville, which was a site of, you know, uh, all sorts of mind control operations. You find all kinds of references to that in the mind control literature. And he was a former Phoenix program operative, too, <laughs> not, not coincidentally. And so, you know, I mean, there's, there's numerous indications that that, that that was uh, definitely an intelligence operation. And I, I think it was kind of a uh, two-pronged strategy there with the, with the Manson family sort of discrediting the hippie communes and the Symbionese Liberation Army sort of discrediting the more radical groups like the SDS and the Weather Underground and whatnot that were, you know, in operation at that time. And that, that was just one of the goals. I mean, there were others, but I, I yeah, I mean, I believe that those that those were uh, goals that were being pursued specifically there, but I don't know in the case of the Boston Strangler because it was just uh, a little before my time. Uh, yeah, thank you for reminding you because it wasn't before my time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, but I take a look at three uh, individuals, and uh, one of them would be Gacy, uh, the other would be Dahmer, and of course we talked about the Salvo. Usually it's always females that seem to be the ones who who are obviously uh, victimized. With Dahmer and Gacy, that was not the case, though, was it? And, and did you treat them at all in your book? Uh, yeah, they're both in there. They're both in there. And they both uh, actually had fairly high-level government connections. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer, there was a strange little story about him, about how he went to uh, Washington, D.C. on a high school uh, field trip when he was like 17, 18 years old, he was like a junior, senior in high school, something like that, went uh, with his class on a trip, and he, uh, he ducked into a phone, phone booth at one time and, and uh, made a call, told his friends that he was going to arrange a private tour of the vice president's office for them. 
and you know they they were naturally skeptical, thought he was full of shit, and uh, but he made the call, and sure enough, he got him in not only just to a private. Uh, to a private, uh, you know, uh, visit to the vice president's office, but also to a private visit to the office of a very high-level uh, columnist, Washington columnist at that time, whose name I can't remember. And, you know, he, he, these are the kinds of things, these little tidbits of information that you will find in these people's stories that are never explored. They're just kind of tossed out there as sort of uh, sides and never followed up on, and no one gives any significance to them. But, I mean, it's quite obvious that your normal average Midwestern kid going back to Washington, D.C., on a visit cannot make a quick phone call and secure a private tour of the vice president's office. You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> that doesn't happen in the real world. This guy obviously had some kind of high-level family connections, you know. And there were other indications as well. And uh, Gacy, Gacy would definitely had high-level connections. He was actually once photographed sitting side-by-side side with Rosalind yep. Carter at the mm-hmm. time that she was first lady. And he can be seen wearing a lapel pin that signifies that he has a very high-level secret, secure, or secret service clearance. And, you know, parts of his police file were blacked out with the notation that it was uh, FBI matter. And, I mean, there was all kinds of these little, you know, he claimed friendships with the governor of of, uh, Illinois and the attorney general. And, uh, you know, I mean, this this guy was was connected politically, quite well connected politically. And that's a fact that's, that's usually just completely brushed over in the biographies of him. Uh, and it's a very common, you know, Ted Bundy, same thing. You look at it, a lot of these people and you will find that there were, in fact, uh, there were, in fact, unexplained connections that these people had to people in, in high levels of, uh, you know, power. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you something uh, which is kind of outside what we're doing, but based on that, it'll give me an idea of what are the kind of questions um, I'd like to ask. Okay. Um, uh, Let's well, let's take a look about about Clinton. Okay. Um, you, are you familiar with uh, either the reality or the unreality of the Clinton body count? I am aware. Yeah, I'm aware uh, to some extent. I mean, I first heard about it years and years and years ago before I was as deeply enmeshed in the you know conspiracy, quote unquote, conspiracy mm-hmm. literature as I am now and. Uh, Considering the source that it initially came from, which was like on a tape put out by, I don't know, Jerry Falwell or one of these guys, (laughs) I thought it was, you know, complete nonsense when I first read it, but, uh, you know, I'm much less skeptical of of those claims now, and Mm -hmm. I yeah, there is quite a a body count, Vince Foster being the most, you know, high profile of Mm -hmm. them, and I, I believe that he absolutely was. Uh, whack. There's no, there's no question in my mind that his suicide was not, in fact, a suicide. But I'm not, you know, I'm not completely up to speed on all the details of the list. And now, no, the reason I bring it up is that um, in that those Clinton Chronicles, uh, the documentary that was released, I think it was also updated and released again. Uh, and you've got investigators for the Arkansas Bureau of Investigation. Uh, and they, they just kind of look like kind of nonplussed in the camera when they talk about all the the stuff they had on him. Uh, and you also had some of the victims' uh, relatives speaking, and uh, and they and they just they couldn't. I, I guess it, it, they've gotten to a point where 
they, they kind of understand why it never went to trial and nothing ever happened, but they are still to this day, I think, just bewildered that uh, that could have been that uh, prominent, that um, uh, widespread, and yet he never hung and no one else ever did for that. But here's where I'm going with this also. Uh, when we are, are we looking at with uh, serial killers and those especially who might be uh, victims or not victims, but obviously, uh, um, I, I guess you would say proponents of uh, MK Ultra and other mind control uh, uh, programs. Are we looking at something where there is a, a systemic and a very detailed way of uh, eliminating? individuals out there and making it look like uh, somebody's just bull goose loony. Yeah, that, that's certainly one. Uh, that's certainly one motivating factor. Yeah, um, I, the, the the whole uh, kind of mythos of, of, of serial killers arose at least in part to uh, yeah to um, you know to write off a lot of politically motivated killings as just sort of random acts of violence. Uh, it's certainly the, the BTK case, BTK killer case. That's uh -huh. uh, that was absolutely a play there. Um, you know the, the first the first victims, his first alleged victims were a family, a military family, an intelligence guy who had you know told his son that. Uh, that, that he was in fear for his life, and that, you know they could be that they felt he'd been targeted, and he'd given his his son instructions on you know what to do should anything happen to him and all. I mean, this was a guy who knew that his life was on the line, uh, and he was deeply involved with intelligence operations and whatnot. And sure enough, the the whole family got wiped out. And then, uh, you know, they sort of tacked on these other random killings of women that, that had absolutely nothing to do with the initial uh, taking out of this family. I mean, the, the entire family pretty much, with the exception of one son, I think, was taken out. And, uh, you know, the, the, the surviving son has said that uh, he just doesn't buy the, the single assailant. Uh, scenario that just absolutely would have been impossible. You know, his father was a, a trained commando. Uh, you know, he knew martial arts. He had weapons in the house. His wife was a judo instructor. The two kids knew judo. They had a, a uh, guard dog on the premises that everyone agreed was just was uh, vicious and fiercely loyal. Would not have allowed anyone in that house that uh, you know. He didn't think belong there, and you know the kid had said, "There's just no way that one guy walked into my house and took out my whole family. There's just no way that could have happened." My dad, you know, was on the lookout to begin with. You know, he was already looking over his shoulder. He was a tough guy. The rest of the family was trained. You know, they were armed. There's just there's no way. So you know, there's no question that 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 was that that family was basically taken out in a, some sort of paramilitary operation, and then they later just tacked on the deaths of all these women with completely different MO, had absolutely nothing to do with it, and said, oh, look, this is just a string of serial killings, that's all it is. So yeah, that, that's certainly one of the motivating factors um, behind the whole serial killer phenomenon, is that it allows politically motivated killings to be just sort of, uh, you know, hidden swept under the rug and nobody takes another look at them because, you know, they're just random acts of violence. Uh, before we go any further, uh, I want to tell you that we're Dave McGowan. The website is uh, www.davesweb.cnchost.com. As uh, we said, he is the author of Program to Kill, 
derailing democracy, and I apologize for butchering the other one, which is understanding the F word, which I said was learning the F word. And you know what that is? That's, that's, that, that, it's, it's a horrible, horrible look into my brain because I learned the F word, but I never really understood it. So anyway, it's understanding the F word. I apologize for that. You were very gracious. But also, you've got a whole lot going on, on that website. So why don't we just take a second and uh, inform people as to what they can find there. Uh, through a lot of the information that you have compiled. Oh, God, a little bit of everything. Um, and you're not in front of your computer, are you? What's that? <laughs> you're not in front of your computer, are you? No. <laughs> like most, well, like most people, or like most, uh, you know, researchers, and stuff, a lot of my time has been occupied for the last, whatever, five and a half years by 911. Mm -hmm. It is pretty much the seminal event of my adult life, pretty much. Um, you know, and you know, I mean, everything, everything flows from that. I mean, everything and everything in our world today is justified on the basis of 911. You know, the yeah. wars, the the clampdowns on civil rights and and uh, privacy rights and due process rights, and you know, on and on and on. Everything is everything is based on the fact that it's a supposed reaction to, a, you know, a legitimate responses to 911. But if 911 wasn't what they tell us it was, then, then all of that needs to be reevaluated, obviously. So uh, it's, a, it's a very important issue, and it's one that I'm not going to let go of. Some people have, you know, said it's been five years, we haven't, you know, gotten through to anyone yet, it's not going to happen. Which is probably true, you know. Well, maybe not. Okay. Kennedy assassination is well, like 45 years old, old now almost, and we still haven't gotten to the truth of that. So, but uh, I, for one, aren't going to give up on it. But there's a lot. I mean, there's a there's a wide range of issues that's explored on my website, uh, in my newsletters. Just kind of whatever catches my interest on the news, I. I uh, branch out in various directions and, uh, you know, follow various trails and see where they'll lead. So, uh, yeah, you'll never, you never know what you might find on my website. There's uh, a lot of uh, sorted weirdness on there. Well, I mean... All of it documented, though. I mean, I'm... Documented weirdness. I myself to be a pretty careful researcher. I don't... Uh, I don't just grab onto any source that I find because it happens to support an idea that I have, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I try very hard to uh, to only present what I think that I can document fairly mm -hmm. well. Well, for, first and foremost, though, you do have the uh, Center for an Informed American Newsletter. Uh -huh. Now, is that something that you will uh, um, uh, uh, disseminate? Uh, from those who do request it from you. Yeah, I, I have a subscription service uh, for it, and they are also posted on my website for those who, uh, some people are very leery of subscription lists, which I can't really blame them in this day and age. You know, everything you do is pretty much tracked and monitored. So, uh, yeah, they're available either by subscription or just by dropping by the site and checking up to see if I've posted a new one recently. They don't, they don't appear on any kind of weekly or regular basis. Uh, they used to kind of. Up, but uh, they just uh, pop up when I get around to it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, tomorrow we're going to talk a little bit about 9-11, in fact, uh, specifically Flight 93, if that's okay with you. Oh, certainly, yeah. Okay, because that, that to me is the crown jewel of that whole day, and that's a bad term to use, but uh, anyway, we'll, we'll deal with that tomorrow. 
uh, going back to the premise uh, about which we're speaking today, and that is serial killing and such, um, I don't know that you treated this, and I'm going to ask you about it, because this to me seems to be an example of, unfortunately, a number of people being executed uh, to perhaps cover up one particular hit. Uh, did you cover this, or if you did not, do you have any opinion on what in the world that bizarre situation with Malvo and Williams, the D.C. snipers, were all about? Uh, I did not cover The book was actually released before, right? mm -hmm. before that case. I did cover it on my website in a series of, uh, I don't know, probably like five or six posts that covers the... Uh, the you know shootings as they were going on, and then the first trial of uh, John Muhammad. I think uh, I did not. Uh, I moved on to other things by the time the other the other guy, the young the kid, went to trial. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, there were there were serious irregularities and, and questions. That 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 case was just downright bizarre. You know, I mean, you had the police chief going on national television to deliver this bizarrely cryptic message which sounded very much like a post-hypnotic suggestion, you know, and which was immediately followed by the two of them found sleeping in their car, you know, taken into custody without a fight, and uh, there was just, yeah, there's a lot of weirdness, you know, the, 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 where the, you know, how, where the gun came from, and, and just, uh, I mean, I, 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 I don't immediately recall all the details, but that is... That's all freely available on my web website for anybody that wants to look at that. Uh, and that's actually kind of a good introduction to uh, the kind of material that you find in the book. So if you want sort of a, a free preview, go to my website and pull up the, that series of, I think, uh, probably about six six posts, I believe, maybe more, maybe less, I don't know, and uh, you read through those, and if you find that of interest, you will probably very much like what the book has to offer, I would say. Uh, we're talking, when you were saying uh, about the sixth post, are we talking about the, the newsletter? Yeah, the newsletter. I'm going to hit it right now, all right, it's June 26, 2002, all right, um, well, I'm not sure that's it, but that's okay, they know they can go there for it, well, what I want to ask you about it was, was this. Uh, one one of the things that was strange was that they came up with the identification of the vehicle that they thought was being used by the two of them, and it's something that's almost laughable because everything in the beginning was a white step van or a white panel van. I'm going, why in the world would people who are trying to be furtive, a white step van, I mean, this is not the getaway vehicle of choice. Or the white van, and of course that stopped traffic on I-95. I don't know how many times when they were looking for for them. And then also, um, I, you know, I, when, when Harry was with the show, we were talking about this as it was happening. When you find out what kind of car they had, when you find out that the back seat was missing, and it was kind of a you know it was a little bit of a dilapidated car. Yeah. Well, we were talking about this because I, you know, coming from Jersey. The, the, the little nasty secret and the joke uh, in Jersey is you don't have to travel more than like five miles on the turnpike or any of the U.S. highways without seeing, you know, two black guys being jacked out of a car, you know what I mean, and the cops going through it. And I'm saying to myself, here these two guys are going around in, like I said, a rather disheveled vehicle with no back seat. How in the world, you know, through all that time and all that driving, didn't they ever get pulled over? Which to me is kind of curious, if you know what I'm saying. And as you just mentioned also, 
that little uh, what seemed to be Manchurian candidate trigger verse in a Cherokee poem or whatever, a fairy tale. I mean, the whole, and then all of a sudden they get found sleeping, you know? Something about the duck is caught in the noose or something. Yeah. Bizarre. Just, he goes, yeah, he just reads off this bizarre thing with some kind of strange explanation for it, and then, like, almost immediately they're taking it. <laughs> it was just really, really bizarre. I mean, it was almost like I got the impression that, uh, that they, uh, you know, whoever was, was in the controllers or whatever, whoever was in charge of this operation had felt that they had lost control of their charges and, uh, and needed to, uh, rein them in or something so they had this guy go on and, and read this I mean what sounded an awful lot to me like a post-hypnotic suggestion and to a lot of other mm -hmm. well even people that aren't into the conspiracy you know thought that stuff thought that was just really bizarre oh. uh, yeah I mean I, yeah that that was my impression that uh, that they you know they were trying to they're trying to communicate with these guys through the media because I believe they had you know sort of uh maybe lost control of them or something and needed needed to rein them in, which is exactly what happened, uh, you know, immediately following that bizarre press conference. Well, yeah, and I mean, no sooner was that, I mean, we saw that happen on the Today Show, and it was in the early morning hours, uh, and uh, I guess within that day or whatever, they're caught uh, sleeping in, I guess, what, some kind of, like, roadside rest area. A rest stop, yeah. They were pulled over supposedly in a rest at a roadside rest stop and uh, there was some weird thing about the guy that had done it. The whole thing was just I know. Really weird. I don't remember all the details, but I mean, it was just bizarre. Just, <laughs> But it's all it's all in the uh, it's all in the uh, the newsletters. I, I pulled up my website. The first one I think I actually wrote was on uh, in October of 2002 was number 20. That was uh, about the killings, I think. Right, I see, right. Then the trial comes up uh, beginning on number 45 through, uh, I don't know, like number 48 or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I covered all of that weirdness, but I, I, it's been, you know, been quite a few years now, so I don't remember all the details, but there was certainly no shortage of weirdness in that story, yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, the whole thing just absolutely reeked. Uh, and I believe that one of the victims, if I remember correctly, was uh, involved in some was some kind of a counterintelligence analyst or something like that. That at the time there was some kind of controversy brewing over. You know, I don't know if that's when the you know all the dust up over the the falsified uh, you know Iraqi intelligence was was in the news. Uh -huh. But there was something going on, and one of the. One of the victims I remember was like a, uh, a female. What's that? Was she a female? Was yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah, it was a woman. Uh, she was some kind of a, of a counter counterintelligence uh, analyst of some sort. Just happened to be one of the victims. Yeah. So yeah, there was there was there was a lot of uh, a lot of the same strands running through that story as through the ones in my book. So uh, yeah, it didn't, didn't make the book, but it did make the website. So I guess that's, that's better in a way because uh, anybody can pull them up mm -hmm. anytime they want and check it out and see if it's something that uh, you might be interested in pursuing further. In the, in the research that you did, um, I don't know how far back you went, but whatever that is, was there a time, and I mean I'm talking about the 19th into the 20th century or whatever, was there a time when it seems that there is now all of a sudden 
a, a, a certain um, frequency of the serial killer. I mean, were, were people, do you know, dealing with this uh, in the 19th century? I mean, we know about Jack Ripper, okay, and that obviously he was plugged in uh, across the Atlantic. But uh, with what you what, what you uh, researched, is there something that that indicates that the serial killer? Uh, I want to say, uh, let's just say, phenomenon starts to really become quite obvious. Are we looking at it in the 19th century, the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century, especially post-World War II? What about that? Uh, the, the modern serial killer phenomenon, so to speak, and it, yeah, this is covered in the, in the book. You, you, you know a lot about the book, actually. <laughs> More than most people. <laughs> I guess I should just... <laughs> sometimes the magic works, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, it actually began uh, in the late 60s, early 70s in, in the San Francisco area. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just sort of this explosion. We, had, the, we didn't even have in our vocabulary the term serial killer until it was coined by the uh, FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit in the early 70s to, you know, explain this sort of explosion of, uh, of these people. Before that, they were, you know, very very few and far between. You know, you had your Albert DeSalvo, you had your Jack the Ripper, and, and uh, you know, but they... they they occurred, you know, Ed Gein in uh, Wisconsin or something like that back in, like, the 50s or something. Uh, but they were few and far between. Uh, they weren't, like, a, a part of our daily diet, so to speak, until, like, the late 60s and early 70s. And it really, it really sort of burst forth from San Francisco, which was, you know, not probably not coincidentally in those days sort of a, an MK Ultra city, sort of a, like the whole... Whole Hate Ashbury district, I think, was like an open air MK Ultra operation. Well, you know, the, no, the, hold it right there. That's interesting. You should say that. I agree with you, and I'm I'm going to bring something up a little bit later, um, with regard to what's going on out there, uh, especially in and around Berkeley and such. Um, yeah, did, did you find that that was a hotbed for a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, cultural experimentation? by the powers that be upon, you know, a segment of the population, which in that time would have been the flower children. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's where, you know, some of the original, you know, this, uh, what was this guy named, something white, George White or something, oper- operated this sort of safe house where they were, you know, experimenting using uh, prostitutes to drug people and whatnot. And, you know, I mean, there was all kinds, yeah, there was all kinds of, uh, yeah, all kinds of MK culture type stuff going on in that scene. And that is exactly where this sort of serial killer phenomenon worked. What I found, or, uh, kind of burst forth. And what I found in my research is, uh, and this is all in the book, is that in this very short span of time, just to like a few years, there were something like six high-profile serial killers stalking that area in just a period of a few years. You had Charles Manson, who started out up there and then drifted down to L.A. You had the Zodiac Killer. You had, um, you had that big, this big guy. What the hell was his name? Big, giant guy. I can't even remember. But, uh, there, was, there, was, there was like... Uh, altogether, there was like six of them. It was, it was just pretty incredible, really. And this was at a time when... The serial killer phenomenon was so rare that we didn't even have a name for it yet. And yet, out of this little, tiny little, you know, geographic area, just a speck on the map, you had, 
literally six of these guys like operating pretty much simultaneously, which is you know very uh, statistically I would think is very highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I I I believe that the 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 modern phenomenon really kind of really kind of grew directly out of that out of that city in the surrounding area, which was as you say just a, an absolute hotbed of of uh, social engineering, so to speak. Yeah, uh, l- let me run this by you. One of the things I've been thinking about lately, um, I, I guess probably prodded most, and that's a good verb to use when I say uh, about Hunter S. Thompson's death. Uh, And then looking back at Ken Kesey, the Memory Pranksters, LSD, Stanford Research Institute, you know where I'm going with this? I'm starting to wonder, I'm I'm beyond just starting to wonder, uh, that this whole whole movement, this whole free love, uh, drug stuff, was completely, completely uh, supported by whatever you want to call it, government, military ops. Uh, you know, the Sanford Research Institute has a certain, uh, shall we say, infamy that they share with Tavistock. And I don't know about Kesey, but, you know, Kesey obviously was a, a grad student at Stanford. You know what I'm saying? Now, I'm wondering if this whole thing wasn't just a wonderful, you know, ex- just, I guess, organic thing that happened in society, but whether or not these people wittingly or unwittingly were supported and this whole cultural shift, and it really was great. And I mean, you know, looking at me and my cohort at this point, you know, this section of the baby boomers, really, uh, we don't have a whole lot to brag about uh, as far as uh, <laughs> more or less crushing morals and, and, and other, and other uh, taboos, supposedly, or breaking down the walls that allowed other taboos. So here's where I'm going with this. Uh, have you ever thought about this or done any research into it with looking at that whole orchestrated flower power thing and believing that, yes, in fact, it was orchestrated. I, I believe very firmly that it was. Yeah, I believe the whole thing was controlled, and that's, that was kind of a hard thing for me to come to grips with. Yep. As, uh, I actually sort of came of age in the 70s, but I always sort of considered myself a, a decade, you know, that I should have been born a decade sooner because I, you know, I'm much more closely identified with the 60s, you know. When I was in college, I was, you know, my music selections were like The Doors and The Beatles, uh-huh. and, you know, Je- Jefferson Airplane uh-huh. and all that. I mean, I, I always felt myself sort of a uh, a child of the 60s that came along 10 years too late, you know. And my idols were, you know, Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey and you uh-huh. know, Hoffman and, and, you know, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, all these kind of guys. And, you know, I, I've, come, I've come around to a much different line of thought in, you know, maybe the last 10 years or so. And, yeah, it's very difficult for me to not believe that, that the whole thing was, was very much controlled. And, you know, I, I believe very strongly that Leary was absolutely a, yes. an operative yes. and, and uh, all of his cohorts. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot of people, you know, staunchly defend him, uh, but I'm not one of those. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I I think that it was very 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 much a controlled movement, very much. I mean, I I, I look at Woodstock as sort of a, a, an open air MK Ultra project, you know, where the, the all this uh, free LSD was. I mean, just like thousands of hits of LSD, mostly bad LSD, was just circulating <laughs> openly. And you know, when does that happen? When do people go around giving away thousands of doses of, of some drug? You know, it's just. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that whole scene in, in retrospect now, you know, many years after the fact and with much research under my belt, I view much, much differently than I did in my younger days, much differently. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have to be honest, I think, uh, and to realize that we thought it was happening as a result of, uh, like I said, some kind of organic process or perhaps even uh, a reaction to, which I think is a really trite excuse, uh, realizing that um, we were living under the, you know, the nuclear bomb where one button push could be, you know, the end of all of us. This nihilism, so to speak, that leads to, like, you know, kind of like renegade behavior. But, yeah, but, uh, you know, so... Yeah, something was going on there. Um, but yeah, in the I think there's lessons to be learned for people today mm -hmm. in that, yes. uh, you know, I mean, just, just as the, just as all the kids in the 60s, the hippies and the yippies and the flower children and, and whatnot, they all thought that they were rebelling against the system, working very much against the system, but to my mind, they were... They, they were basically being controlled by the by the system. They were a you know a, a you know a dissident uh, movement that was very quickly brought under control and kept under control. And I think that's very true today. I think people that I think the the anarchist movement and the patriot movement, uh, for example, are very much controlled. And, mm -hmm. Same, same thing, and the people that are in those movements are, are quite sincere, and you know they're good people, and they think they're doing the right thing. But I think in many cases they are actually, uh, whether they know it or not, they're working to advance the very agenda that they think they're fighting against. Well, I'll tell you what, I can't believe you said that, uh, but in a short time to come, um, I've been heading that way anyway. When you talk about even the patriot movement being something, of course. Uh, we, we all get it about the Hegelian dialectic, but we never thought for a second that perhaps some of this, or perhaps most of it, uh, is to create and pull us into a Hegelian dialectic that we don't even know uh, we're part of. In fact, what it would be is a conspiracy amongst the conspiracy uh, researchers. Yeah, well, a lot, of, a lot of researchers, you know, they realize through, you know, their own research and readings that, uh, you know, our intelligence agencies routinely control opposition groups in other countries, you know, they control mm -hmm. both sides of the debate, and, and uh, I mean, if you want complete control, that's that's the only way to do it, you got to control all sides of the debate, you got to limit the parameters of the debate, basically, and, you know, they recognize that it's done in other countries, well, why why in the world wouldn't it be done here, you know, I mean, it just mm -hmm. stands to reason, if you know, that... If they're going to all that trouble everywhere else in the world, why wouldn't they do it here? Of course they would. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of people are seriously misled, and, they, you know, they may be quite sincere and quite passionate about what they're doing, but in many cases they are uh, they're working against their own interests and don't realize it. Uh, that's, I tell you what, that, if we can for another day, I'd like to talk to you about that without a doubt. Uh, but it's the old story that uh, as I watch nationalism start to really sweep across this country, and I'm, I'm trying to say to people, don't you understand, this is exactly what happened in pre-World War II Germany. And, and the whole idea is, and if you'll forgive me, but I mean, if you remember that little uh, segment from Spinal Tap, uh, which uh, when they're trying to explain about, you know, well, this, this amp goes to 11. Do you remember that at all, David? Mm, okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. I don't want to sound too crazy, but it's just like, but it's America. And you're like, don't you? No, no. I know it's America, folks, but don't you understand it can happen here? And it's like, oh, no, no. 
this is America. Well, they don't get it. That's, I mean, that's one of the biggest impediments we face is that we are conditioned from birth to believe that this is America and nothing, nothing like that happens yep. here. You know, it happens elsewhere in the world, but, you know, certainly not here in America. We're immune to that kind of stuff, so, but uh, we're certainly not. <laughs> no. By any stretch of the imagination are we immune to that kind of stuff. And neither is the Patriot Movement uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, Insulated, protected against, uh, invulnerable to uh, the same kind of um, handling. But like I said, for another time, and I thank you for bringing that up, but one last thing before uh, we have to go. With regard to what you've done in the book and all that you've seen from your research as you stand back, uh, throughout the decades, and then like you said, especially in the 60s, was there any kind of pattern that you found with frequency? In other words, did it rise at a certain time, a season, a year? any particular time through a decade? Did you find anything that showed you some kind of uh, plot line uh, through uh, the last 40 years? Um, no, well, I didn't really look at it in that regard. Okay. So, um, no, I mean, all I, I can say is I didn't find that, but I didn't really look for it. So I don't know if there is some is there a pattern of that sort there. It, just, it, it didn't really cross my mind to look at it in that regard. I, I'll, I'll tell you this. We had... We have one still going on down here. And th again, this is a little bit strange. Are you familiar with the case of Henry Boland? No, I'm not. But I do, uh, my book does make note of the fact that the three states that uh, contribute more than, mm -hmm. far more than their fair uh, share of uh, serial killers are Texas, Florida, and California which are also just happen to be uh, areas where cult activity is mm -hmm. reported far more frequently than in other areas and also happen to be the three primary entrance point entry points for all for most of the illegal drugs entering this country and if you know if you look through these stories you'll definitely find uh, that those are common strands that serial killers kind of tend to follow the drug traffic you know they they the other covert operations run sort of hand-in-hand hand with uh, serial killers, including uh, drug trafficking and even human trafficking. Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of follow the same corridors. So, um, yeah, your, your state and my state play play uh, very prominent roles in the book. Yep. You, you guys have, yeah, you, you, yeah, you've had uh, the, the Gainesville Ripper. That's and, yeah, Danny, uh, yeah. Henry and uh, his partner and you know, Bundy, Bundy mm -hmm. was there for you know, all kinds of people, all kinds of them there and, and in my state and in Texas, uh, they just seemed to just sprout up everywhere. Uh, I, I only say this about Boland. I mean, we moved down here, and I think he had just uh, been, I guess, indicted for the murder. But, you know, I, well, we've been down here like for 14 years, and this thing is the longest-running show. You know, uh, uh, judicially that I can think of. I mean, I've watched him age, and they still haven't been able to throw him into old Sparky. And that's another interesting situation. But again, as you well know, uh, Florida, because of the weather especially, uh, there's a lot of transients, a lot of easy pickings for people because obviously they're removed from their home or whatever, you know, from their home state. And it gets it's strange, but I will tell you also in the county in which I live, uh, this county leads the state in uh, unsolved uh, murders because what has happened throughout time is that they will kill somebody, whether it's a whack job or not, and they bring them out into a good old rural Pasco County, and when
when the farmer goes out to cut his uh, field or go through his orange grove, guess what he finds? <laughs> so it's a, it's a really, really a grisly situation around here. Um, but before we go, again, uh, Dave McGowan, uh, you've, you've written three books. We're talking today about Program to Kill. You do have Understanding the F Word and Derailing Democracy. How can people uh, uh, order them, and how can they also find out more about the work you've done? Um, but for the most part, the books, uh, your best bet is to get them from an online dealer. It's, they're not the kind of books that you're going to walk into a brick-and-mortar bookstore and see prominently on display. No. Sure. <laughs> Especially the second two. The first one, a little more so than, than the second two, because I actually had a real publisher for the first one, whereas the second two, I basically had to go the self-publishing route. Right. So, you know, the only the only surefire way of finding them is, you know, through Amazon or, uh, you know, one of the barnesandnoble.com or, one, you know, one of the online sellers. You can pick up, pick up copies from any of those. First one's a little dated at this point. Uh, still some good information in there, but, you know, a lot of the world has really changed a lot since I think that book was released in, like, 99 or something, pre-911. Uh, you know, the world is kind of divided into pre and post 911 now. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh, but it's still got some valuable information. But that, that's, you know, that's really your, your only, uh, sure bet for, for tracking the books down. And as far as getting in, additional information, there is, uh, you can spend many, many long days, uh, prowling through all the information on my website to get an idea of, you know, what I'm all about, and, you know, what my, uh, what my leanings are and my writing style and whatnot. I tend to inject a lot of humor, a lot of dark humor, black humor, uh, mm-hmm. on the principle that, uh, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down and all that. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to, de- to delve into very, very dark topics, those stuff that uh, a lot of people don't really want to even get involved in, and uh, so I try to sort of lighten the, lighten the load a little bit as much as possible with a little levity here and there. And, uh, you know, you can get a good taste of all of that from, from my website, and uh, you know, if you like what you find, then the books are out there. They may not be the easiest to find, but they are out there. Okay. Uh, if you will, Dave, stay with us. I'm going to bid the... Uh the audience, goodbye. Uh, folks, you will hear Dave tomorrow, uh, and we'll talk about Flight 93. We'll see you back then, and uh, have a good day.